You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Thank you, leaders. We, we love you guys. What a joy to pray over you, and we look forward to praying over you one more time at the 1120 gathering today. We began a series a few weeks ago uh, called Heaven's Edge, and our desire was to, to stir our minds and to stir our hearts toward the Lord and seeing what heaven, the, especially um, heaven's perspective, must have been of the very first Christmas. What was the first Christmas like from the edge of heaven, from the perspective of heaven? And this morning, we're going to be in what I believe is the richest of all Christmas passages in John chapter 1. So if you're a copy of God's Word, let's go together to the Gospel of John. Go to John chapter 1 with me, please. Let's get there together. John 1, 1. I encourage you to open up your copy of God's Word. This will be the only chapter we're in this morning. So I encourage you to look there, maybe share a Bible if you don't have one with you today, or someone next to you doesn't, be be willing to share with them. John chapter 1. We're going to divide this up into kind of three different passages and then kind of take each of these passages and see what the Lord has to say to us this morning about Christmas from the perspective of heaven. John chapter one, beginning in verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let's, let's stop in this portion of the passage. Um, the word word, of course, is used over and over again. So let's determine what the word is. There's five things that we can discover about the word just in these first five verses. First of all, the word is divine. Uh, we see that here in verse one. The beginning was the word and the word was with God. The word was God. So the word is divine. The second thing we can learn about the word in these first five verses is that the word is a person. Look at the very beginning of uh, verse two. And he, this word, he was in the beginning with God. Here's a third thing we can learn about the word from these few verses this morning. That's simply this. The word was, was uncreated. It existed uncreated. We see this here in verse two. In the beginning, all things were made through him. So this word is not just divine-ish. It would be inaccurate to say this morning, it would be incomplete to say this morning that Jesus is just divinish, just just partly God or, or kind of God. Because we see here the word was uncreated. He did not have a beginning because everything that had a beginning had its beginning in him. For he was before the beginning. Here's the fourth thing we know about the word. The word is the source of all life. We see this in, in verse four. Verse four says, in him was life, and this life was the actual light of, of men. So the word is divine. The word is a person. The word is uncreated. The word is the source of all life. And the fifth thing is actually, I'm gonna have to cheat on this one. You're gonna have to jump outside of this passage and jump down to verse 14 to see who the word is because the word is Jesus. This word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, So this is Jesus. So who is the word? The word is divine. He's God. He's a person, a he. He's uncreated in the beginning. He's the source of all life. In him was life. And fifthly, we see the word was Jesus. Now, verse six, seven, and eight is John writing a little bit about his biography. 
And John writing about his intersection of, of the life of Christ and the biography of Jesus. So we're gonna skip through six, seven, eight and pick back up in verse nine. Because verse nine is a great transition from verse five where John was talking about the light shining in the darkness. So here we see in verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world, Christmas. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So let's look at these few verses, verse nine through 13. There's a, there's a theme in, in three of these verses, verse 10, verse 11, verse 12, and just, just look at it in verse 10, they did not know him. Verse 11, they did not receive him. The, the inverse of verse 12, they did not believe him. There's something I want us to all understand in this house this morning. Rejection is possible. It is possible to, to reject Jesus, to push him aside. We see here in this passage that even his own people, even those in his own culture, even those in his own language group, even the insiders did not believe him, did not know him, did not receive him. It is possible for a person to reject Christ. But, Merry Christmas, it's also possible to know God and to believe on God and to receive Jesus. What's the blessing of those who believe upon the name of the Lord? What's the blessing of those who know Jesus, who, who receive Jesus? Verse 12 tells us the blessing. It's a title. No, it's not really a title, it's a position. Look what it says here in, in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, for all who did believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So sisters in Christ, because you have believed upon Jesus, you are a daughter of God. In fact, let me say to you, sisters, that's the truest thing about you, is that you're a daughter of God. Brothers, hear me, if you're in Christ today, good news, you're a son of God. Hear me clearly. The truest thing about you, brother, is that you're a son of God. That's the truest thing about you. Those who believe upon the name of Christ, those who receive Christ, those who know Christ, they are given this incredible position as being daughters and sons of God. John chapter one, verse 14. And the word, we've determined this is Jesus already, divine person, uncreated, the source of all life. This word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace, full of truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Oh man, there's like 50 sermons in those past few verses. I'll just preach one, you're welcome. But there's a lot of depth and a lot of wealth of theology and doctrine and insight into the heart and the character of God through the Son, Jesus Christ. Let me just point out one thing in verse 14. I bet you've heard this pointed out before. It's one of my favorite things about verse 14. When it says there that the Word became flesh and then dwelt among us. It's an interesting word, skuneno, skuneo, 
it means to tabernacle, which really is not a verb in English. A tabernacle or a tent or a temple, that's, that's a noun. But here, John takes that word and makes it more like a verb that when Christ came, he put on flesh and then he tabernacled with us. He became the tabernacle. Now, all throughout history and cultures outside of our culture, any society that has believed that there is a God has also believed there is a gap. Any culture that has a God or or some God also has an understanding of a gap, that that God is powerful and we're powerless, that that God is great and that we are small, that that God is perfect and we are imperfect. And so cultures throughout the span of history have built meeting places, mosques, synagogues, tabernacles, churches, tents, where they can meet God. And there in all of these places of meeting throughout the span of history, every culture that believes there is a God also believes there is a gap. And so they have gone to this place of meeting. And usually in that place of meeting, there's some understanding of a sacrifice and of a need for a priest. Someone to help humanity meet up with this perfect God. Someone to help bridge that gap because any culture that has some kind of God also has some understanding of a gap. So when Jesus comes, he says, I am that place. I am the tabernacle. I am the temple. I am the dwelling place of God. I am the meeting place. I am the ultimate priest who will come and bridge that gap that we all perceive between a perfect God and imperfect humanities. When Jesus says here that he became flesh, when John says of Christ here, he became flesh, it says here that he came and he tabernacled among us. He became the meeting place for you and God. Becoming the ultimate priest to bring God and man together so that we might become his children by grace. That is the reward of faith. That is the blessing of calling upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So this morning, let's take these passages and let's look at five pre-Christmas strategies of God. There was some kind of dialogue. We saw this two weeks ago in Hebrews chapter 10 where the father and the son had a dialogue, a conversation before Christmas. Uh, We saw last week that there was a a declaration of war when God decided to send his son, Jesus, because Christ was going to come to defeat the enemy, to defeat the works of Satan, to to defeat death, to defeat sin, and more specifically, to defeat the penalty of our sin. And so this morning, let's look through this passage. Let's see some pre-Christmas strategies, some decisions that were made by the Godhead from the edge of heaven, perspective of heaven before the very first Christmas. Here's the first thing. The present darkness needed a prevailing light. That was a pre-Christmas dialogue. A pre-Christmas strategy, a decision was made from the edge of heaven. The present darkness needed a prevailing light. What darkness we were living in. I mean, just consider darkness with me for, for, for a moment. When When all is dark, you cannot see what is ahead. And when you cannot see what is ahead, you don't have hope for what is ahead. When you can't see what is around you and beneath you and above you, there's no assurance. There's no promises on which you can move forward. 
So when people live in, in darkness, a, a present darkness, there's a hopelessness to the future. Listen, all, all who are human, and if you're not, you don't have to listen for the next few moments, but all who are, who are human, we understand suffering, don't we, in this house? We understand what it means to suffer. We understand disappointment. We understand difficulty. We understand loneliness. But can you imagine loneliness in the darkness? Suffering in the darkness? Difficulty in the darkness? That was the present darkness before the Godhead made a decision that a prevailing light was needed to shine in the middle of the darkness in which we lived. So God makes this decision from the edge of heaven before the very first Christmas to send this life-giving, hope-producing, brilliant, light-carrying baby, Jesus the Christ. And in doing so, there was a fulfillment of prophecy from the writer Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter nine, verse two, you see on the screen behind me, he writes, the people who walked in darkness, they have seen a great light. That's the prevailing light of Christ. Those who are living in a land of deep darkness on them has a light dawned. This is the picture of the present darkness that needed a prevailing light. Here's the second thing. Pre-Christmas strategy, God would refuse to be distant. Before the very first Christmas on the edge of heaven, here was the strategy of God. He was gonna refuse to be distant from his people, from his creation, from humanity. You see, the presence of God before the very first Christmas was a wind, a fire, a pillar, a presence, a voice, light. But that was just a fraction of God. That was not the fullness of God. That was not the full essence of God. It was a God who was, who was reduced to just fire or to just wind or to just a voice. So God makes this pre-Christmas strategic decision. I will no longer be distant from my people. That the person of God wasn't fully seen or known or believed upon in, in the Old Testament. The character of God, again, was just, was just fractional in the wind, the voice, the fire, the cloud, the pillar. God makes this pre-Christmas decision. I will not be distant from my people. Here's the third strategy that we see pre-Christmas from the edge of heaven. God would now make himself knowable, verse 10. Receivable, verse 12. Believable, verse 12. The unknown would make the determination he would be known. The mystery would be unwrapped. God would now become accessible, available, reachable, unrestricted. The mystery that was hidden from us throughout the ages was about to be unwrapped. So moms and dads and, and grandparents and older siblings who will experience Christmas in a few weeks with younger kids around you, around the tree, as they tear open into those presents and ribbons go flying everywhere. And it's a mass chaos of unveiling and unwrapping. Just understand this. That was the decision of God. I was once hidden as a mystery. But now I am making this pre-Christmas strategic decision. I will be known. I will be unwrapped. I will be unveiled. The fourth pre-Christmas strategy I want you to know from this passage is that Jesus, creator, would subject himself to creation and time. 
Remember, Jesus is the one who existed uncreated before time began. I know we've read it already, but go back with your Bible open to verse one. In the beginning was the word. That word was with God. That word was with God. Verse two, he was in the beginning with God. And all things, everything was made through this word, made through Christ. And without Jesus was not anything made that was made. So he is the creator of all things. He is sovereign over creation, sovereign over time. And he was before the beginning. We see here in verse one, verse two, verse three. And now, now Highland, he would subject himself to creation. He would subject himself to time, to to hunger, to pain, to thirst, to humanity, to a countdown clock to his cross. The one who created all things who was all things who was above time, who was above his own creation is now subjecting himself to creation itself, to the law, to humanity. How restricting. How reductive, how confining. How humble. For this son of God, the treasure of heaven who was in the beginning, who is God, to subject himself to the point of death, yes, even death on a cross. Listen, when you see a man running to die for his enemies, you take note. When you see someone moving, coming to die for his enemies, you really can't just be stoic about it, Highland. You really just can't be without comment or without emotions. When you see someone coming to die for their enemy, you either think him a crazed fool or the greatest lover of your soul whom you'll adore for all eternity. And this Jesus subjected himself to creation, time, humanity, and listen, subjected himself to his own cross. Here's the fifth and last strategy I think we can see from heaven's edge before the very first Christmas. Here it is, grace would be available to all who believe. This was a strategic decision of the Godhead. We're gonna now make sure that grace is available to all who believe. So let me break this down a little bit so we're all on the same page here. Let me kind of pull together the Old Testament and the New Testament in about two and a half minutes or less. So here you go. First one, grace was limited in the Mosaic law. If your Bible's still open, John writes about this in verse 17. For the law, the law was given through, through Moses. So what does it mean for for grace to be limited under the law, for grace to be limited under the Mosaic law, the law that that Moses brought. Here's what it means. It means access to God was for the elite. Access to God was for the elite. In Exodus chapter 24, uh, verses one and two, Moses was allowed into the presence of God and that was it. The other elders had to stay outside of the tent of meeting. They had to stay outside of, if you will, the meeting place, the tabernacle. As God was there in his presence, only Moses was allowed in. It was for the elite. It was for the insiders. It was for those who, who knew the system. This was the limited nature of grace under the law. Access to God was, was for the elite only. The view of God also was, was, was just partial. 
In that same passage in Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 11, when Moses and the elders, they do go to, to see God, to seek God, all they see is the glory underneath his feet. That's just a partial view of God. I'll say it again, just a fraction of the essence of God, the power of God, the glory of God. And so under the Mosaic law, grace was so limited that the view of God was simply partial. But here's the third thing I want you to see. You see it already on the screen. And the word of God was about rules. When Moses and the elders come down off that mountain after being under the feet, the glory of the feet of God, they did not bring God back. They brought tablets back. Tablets of rules, tablets of instruction, tablets of regulation. It was not that God sent himself back to the people. He sent out what had to be done the rules that needed to be followed. This is how grace was so limited under the Mosaic law. So John writes about that in verse 17. But here's the new picture. Here's the the strategy of heaven to, to send this Christ because now grace is unlimited in Jesus Christ. Look at this in verse, verse 14. Let's just go back one more time. Verse 14, the word became flesh. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace, filled with grace, filled with truth. Look at verse 16. When John was writing, he says in verse 16, for, for from his fullness, we have all received this grace upon grace, which in, in Greek means grace multiplied by grace, multiplied by grace, multiplied by grace. Verse 17, the law was given through Moses, but what comes through Jesus? Grace. Grace and truth. So now grace is unlimited in Jesus Christ. So let's see what that looks like now in, in juxtaposition to the Old Testament. Number one, access to God is now for everyone who believes. Not just for the elite, not just for the chosen, not just for the insiders, but for anyone who will believe. John chapter one, verse, verse 12, uh, it, it tells us that, uh, but to all who did receive him to all, not just to the elite, not just to the small, not just to the insiders, but to all who did receive him, all who did believe in his name. He gave all of them the right to become the children of God. Access to God is now for, for everyone. Here's the second thing. The view of God is now personal and it's, and it's full, no longer reduced, no longer redacted, no longer just a partial view of God, but a full personal view view of God. John chapter one, verse 14, the word of God became flesh or the word became flesh and he dwelt among us and we have seen him. We have seen his glory. We've seen the glory as of the only son from the father. Uh, John chapter one, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He has made him known. Here's the third thing I want you to see again in, in light of the Old Testament limited grace. Here's the unlimited grace that comes through Christ. The word of God now is about relationship. Knowing God, entering into a relationship with God through the son, Jesus Christ, not just a bunch of rules, not just a tablet of instruction, not just all these regulations that we have to jump through. It is now about a relationship. John chapter one, verse 15, John bore witness about him a person, the son, he cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he, a person, was before me. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Where does grace and truth come from? From a person, a relationship through Jesus Christ. This would be the determination of heaven. Grace would now be available to all who believe. I know we skipped a few verses, but that's verse one through 18. 
If you'd like to take on a challenge and you look like a bunch today that would love to have one more challenge thrown at you, here's the challenge I'd give you. Read one of these verses every day. Start with verse one today. When you get to verse 18, you'll read that on the morning of Christmas. If you'll start today, just, just one verse at a time. Verse one today, verse two tomorrow, verse three on Tuesday, just con continue on. You will wake up on Christmas and you will read that 18th verse and be reminded once more of the love of God through Christ Jesus. You see, as we read scripture, our affection for Jesus should swell and swell and grow and grow and increase and increase. So I'd encourage you to do that this, this Christmas season. But I, I wanna submit one more thing to you, and here it is. I believe that, that Christmas, that the word becoming flesh is the most incredible miracle of all the Bible and all of history. Now stay with me. I would say to you that God has become flesh. Here, that God has become man, that God has come to us. What you see behind me is the greatest miracle of all time. Some are gonna disagree. Send me an email, we can disagree. But let me say this. Some say, what about that miracle of Jesus walking on water? That's, I mean, wow, that's startling. Yes, yes. Until you realize Jesus made that water. You go, oh. Still a miracle, I'm, I'm not, I'm not that's an, I've, I've never done it, I've never seen any of you do it, but walking on water is amazing, but you must realize Jesus created the water and he knew the storm was coming and he saw directly into the hearts of the fearful disciples. What about the feeding of the 5,000, Durham? That's my last name, Durham. Well, what do you think about that? Like that's, that's amazing, like a few pieces of bread, a few sardines, like 5,000 men. That could have been 12 to 15, 18,000 people. That is amazing. Until you realize that Jesus made the wheat and the fish and the stomachs of the hungry people. Oh, still a miracle. I'm, I'm not discounting, I'm not reducing that miracle whatsoever. I'm just submitting to you today the greatest miracle of all scripture and of all history is that God became flesh. All right, preacher, what about the resurrection? That was pretty incredible also. Yes. And Jesus is the ruler of life and death. Is it that startling that by his own authority, he picked himself up out of that grave? I would say to you, the greatest miracle is this, that God put on flesh came and met with us so that he could be known and received and believed. I say it's the greatest miracle in all of history. Would you stand with me please as we pray together? And so God, we, we bow our head in awe and we're about to sing in awe. God, we can't just sing Christmas carols or songs about you like we're singing about some routine thing. This is the most astounding, miraculous reality in all the world. God became a man.
the word became flesh and dwelt with us. God has come to us. This is not routine. This is not mundane. This is not stick your hand in your pocket and yawn. This is God coming to us. We're not over it yet. From the edge of heaven, oh God, you made strategic decisions. You would not be a distant God and your grace would no longer be limited, but without limits to everyone who believes. Praise God. In the treasure of heaven's name, Jesus, we pray.